a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, Quinn, what does the heir to the Bloomingdale fortune, movie star Cary Grant, and a Moroccan king have in common? Think about it. Okay, so is this like a a three guys walk into a bar kind of joke or? Kind of, sort of, sure. Okay, Um, Morocco is in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Bloomingdale's is in Midtown (laughs) East. (laughs) (laughs) Cary Grant (laughs) Uh, was in North by Northwest. Oh, oh, speaks with a mid-Atlantic accent. Quinn, where are you going with this? Mid, mid. I think. Okay, I think the answer is mid. I'm betting it all. Quinn, the king of Morocco, Cary Grant, the Bloomingdale's mid is what you would mid. describe them. Absolutely not. That seems like a final answer. Big old reach. Okay, I'm going to give you a hint. It's a person. Oh, so it's not a thing they have in common. No. It's a person, but it's not yeah. just a person. We're going to call her a legend. Her name is Vicky Morgan. She's not related to Sonia, and her life may have been short, but boy, was it full. You're talking Vicky Morgan, uh, mistress to the stars. Yes, I am. She was, like, super into hanging out with wealthy people, really well-connected people. Wasn't she killed by the CIA? (laughs) Whoa, 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 Quinn, we can't be making that type of claim. Spoiler alert. Also, we haven't even told her story yet. I'm not giving you an inch. Okay, so this is this is a teaser. So this that's a teaser. That's typical. It's the intro. Yeah. Hello. What do you expect from us? Oh, this is the intro. <laughs> yes. Don't we usually do something like dramatic to lead into a story? Yeah, but if I'm being honest, in Vicky Morgan's short 31 years of life, she lived more than the both of us combined. And you're 40 and I'm 33. Between the two of us, we have 73 years. She lived more in 31 years than the two of us did. I'm going to say that I do not love you outing me for being 40. That <laughs> you felt just turned aggressive. 40. But... Quinn, you just turned 40. Before we get into your dirty laundry, wait a minute. We're about to get into Vicki Morgan's dirty laundry. We got to go tit for tat and on it's this. it's dirty, folks. It's dirty. It's a doozy full of romance, affairs, drugs, money, and murder. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Wow. So there is actually too much even going on in this story to do the whole nitty-gritty of Vicki Morgan's upbringing. But, you know, I, I think it's worth it to say that she doesn't come from money. She's from Colorado Springs, but early in life, she moves to Montclair, California, and really, she's just a regular schmegular girl, except for the fact that she is tall, blonde, and gorgeous. Um, And look, we all know, if you want to be successful in life, looks aren't everything. 
except they are. Yeah, but with beautiful looks comes a lot of responsibility, right? I wouldn't necessarily say that she kind of benefited from this because at the ripe age of 13, when she's not a girl, not yet a woman, she's being sexualized by all of those around her, right? It's like she's taught Mm -hmm. from a really young age that this power she has, that this beauty that was sort of bestowed upon her is her ticket out, and it's sort of the only power that she can wield, right? But this, quote, blessing, if that's what we'll call it, will eventually lead to her demise. When she's around 15 years old, she gets pregnant. And may I say, that's a little young to be getting pregnant? You wouldn't be lying. Um, (sighs) She is not old enough to drink, let alone buy cigarettes. I don't think she can drive a car yet, you know? Um, So, you know, she's pregnant, even though she can't do all these things. She doesn't know what to do about that. She's a kid. But Vicky is pretty headstrong, I will say from what we see at this time in her life, because immediately she realizes the people around her are trying to persuade her that she should give the baby up for adoption, because she's not married and that's just how it works. But Vicky refuses. It's her choice. It's her responsibility. So at 16 years old, she goes to a home for unwed mothers and she gives birth. And even then, they try to take her kid away. She doesn't see her baby for a month. And they do that so they can try and convince her to give the kid up for adoption. But again, she refuses and she signs the birth certificate. It is her kid. Yeah, and she signs uh, the name Todd Morgan, giving this baby her last name, which again, she's a trailblazer. Nobody's doing that at this time. She did it before it was cool. And by the way, I'm cool because I did it too, Vicky. My kids are both Posner. But then Vicky moves to L.A. and leaves Todd behind with her mom. And I guess really what there is to know about this point in her life is that she doesn't really have a plan. She has a suitcase. She has what some would call chutzpah. But she does have what it takes to survive. It's 1970, and Vicky has made it to L.A. with three bucks, two bags, one Vicky. One me. Uh, She starts working as an usher at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, which feels like a very L.A. thing to do. I don't live there, but that's just Mm -hmm. what I assume people do. And there she meets 43-year-old Earl Lamb. Now, keep in mind, she's 17 at the time, and the two of them? Well, they go and get hitched in Vegas. But she's 17 years old. She's just a teenager. I don't think she really takes to married life that well because she's still going out. She's flirting with other guys. She's she's going out on the town, having a good time. Well, she probably invites him, but he's 43. So he's like, "Uh, I'm going to watch a Netflix. (laughs) Like, that doesn't sound like my idea of a fun night. Quinn, you can identify as a 40-year-old. I do. I identify with Earl, to be clear, in this story. And Vicky, she's like, she's young. Like you said, she loves a night out on the town. And one night, she goes out. She is going to meet a friend at the Old World Restaurant, which is just a star-studded place. Um, You know, it's like a hard rock cafe. (laughs) (laughs) Except this one, there are real stars, not just pictures of stars. Let's just say that's the difference. And they're known for their Belgian waffles, which I don't think are on the menu at Hard Rock. Um, but she's there. All the dudes are checking her out. She's used to this. Doesn't phase her. But one guy catches her eye, 
he's this surprise, surprise, older guy who is there already with another woman, but he just keeps checking her out. And he gets closer and closer to her. He's he's creeping on her um, while she's waiting. And he steps up to her and he's like, do you want to join me? But Quinn, he has like kind of a gravelly voice. Can you do it in his voice? Yeah, sure. Okay. Do you want to join me? (laughs) That's like the Crypt Keeper. He is like 50s. He's like 54 to be exact. (laughs) Okay, so I, I stand by your... Your voice acting. Thank you. And he also has these like weird nervous tics about him. And he introduces himself as none other than Alfred Bloomingdale. Yes, that Bloomingdale of the brown bag fame. Vicky has no idea, though, who he is. She's like, uh, cool, bro. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, I'm married. I have a kid. She's just trying to basically get him to beat it. But that doesn't stop him. This guy clearly is powerful. And she keeps denying him. He then like sort of changes his tactic and he's like, hey, how old are you? Ah, interesting. I have a daughter who just got back from tennis camp and she's actually looking for someone to play with. Actually, can I get your number? Smooth move, Alfred. Smooth move. Gross move, Alfred. Do you know what it reminds me of? (laughs) It reminds me of like the scary guy in the car pulling up to the kid and being like, I have a daughter your age at home. Do you want to come play with it? (laughs) Like there's something really unsettling about it. But weirdly, she goes for it. She must love tennis. She's like, yeah, no problem. Fine. Here's my number. And then she goes because her friends arrived and they go sit down for, I don't know, waffles. Yeah, sure. Maybe she's got waffles. Maybe she's got some, you know, a mimosa. She's 17, so why wouldn't she? I'm more of a savory brunch girl, but that's just me. Um, But she notices sort of out of the corner of her eye, Alfred and his lady friend finish their meal, and then she sees him approach her yet again. And he reaches for the palm of her hand to say goodbye, and he presses a little slip of paper into it and then just walks away. I mean, what the heck? Is it a love letter? Is it directions to his room? Is it like a love note? Do you like me? Circle yes, circle no. No, no, no. It's a bank slip. It's a check made out to her for $8,000. So after this lackluster, somewhat awkward volley, his final serve leaves her in love. So this obviously gets her attention. So I guess for him, it's mission accomplished. So she brings it to her husband, yes, because she's still married. And despite his protestations to not cash it, you know, because I think it probably doesn't feel good to have your wife come home with a check from another man for $8,000, it's still $8,000. And she's like, what do you, you can't stop me. And so she cashes the check for $8,000, which frankly... I get it. Um, As soon as she cashes the check, though, she starts getting calls from Alfred nonstop. It's sort of like by cashing it, she's given him permission. Like she gets up to 20 calls the next day. He's obsessed with her. And Vicky is like, okay, you can buy me drinks. You can buy me dinner. You know what? Now that I think about it, you could probably buy me a lot of things. Let me make a list. Eventually, he invites her to a friend's house on Sunset Plaza Drive in the Hollywood Hills. And this is where things get a little weird, okay? Oh, you don't think they're already weird? They're weird, but I got to say, PSA, don't go to a second location. That's just like a hot tip from me to (laughs) Uh you guys. Don't go to a second location because when she arrives at this home, she's met with a couple of sex workers who are about to start a BDSM scene. 
I'm not, listen, I'm not here to kink shame, but I do want to just give like a reminder and set this scene here because Vicki Morgan is 17 years old and she's just been invited to a sex party by a 54-year-old man. I'm sorry, can anyone else just like see red flags just like waving in front of her eyes? Yeah, yeah. No, they're they're probably <laughs> they're probably everywhere. They're probably being used to tie people up and gag them. I mean, there's a lot of red flags on the scene. And so I imagine Vicky is um pretty surprised because uh, you know, she probably already gave him that wish list and I bet this wasn't on it. Yeah, it's not like he wears his fetish on his sleeve. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, it's he's Bloomingdale's like publicly. He's an extremely successful entrepreneur because he's got the department store fortune, but he also created the first credit card service. And this guy is powerful because by the time he meets Vicky, he's actually an unofficial advisor for Ronald Reagan. Yes, that Ronald Reagan. He actually helps Reagan become the governor of California, and eventually he's going to help him to the White House as well. And to top it all off, it's not just like he's giving counsel and advice. Alfred Bloomingdale's wife, Betsy Bloomingdale, is besties with Nancy Reagan. So, like, they're all connected. Okay, it's a double date situation, Mm -hmm. um, which then it's really fair to say uh, after we've listed the dude's resume that – You just, you don't expect him to necessarily be cavorting with sex workers and whips. But at the same time, I I second guess myself and think maybe he's exactly the guy you expect to be doing that because he's probably a guy that's really good at uh, holding secrets. Okay, so Alfred asks 17-year-old Vicky to join him in these sexcapades. And I think even at the time, Vicky feels like something might not be right, what's going on, but for some reason, unbeknownst to her, she sort of agrees to be a part of these scenes. And I think also Alfred at the time makes it very clear to Vicky that she's his priority, right? It's like she's the person that he wants to do these scenes with. And it sort of gives her maybe a semblance of power. I don't know. It, it, it You kind of wonder, does she really have a choice? You know, like, yeah, sure. She turns 18, and now it's time to enhance the situation. And what that looks like is that Alfred is like, I'm ready to pop the question. Oh. Hold tight. Okay. Betsy's going nowhere. Okay. (laughs) The guy's married. It's more of a, I guess you would say, like, an indecent proposal because he's like, Vicky, will you be my mistress? And listen, Vicky isn't sure. I mean, for one— Vicky's still married, okay? And listen, she is having an affair with Alfred um, against her own husband. So I wouldn't call their relationship like a pillar of trust or one that she's probably like taking a lot of care to sort of maintain. But then Alfred ups the ante. He promises that if she's his mistress, he'll take care of everything. He'll give her money. He'll give her comfort beyond her wildest beliefs. Anything her or her son wants, they can have it. And at that point, 18-year-old Vicky is kind of like, I can't pass up this opportunity. Once-in-a-lifetime vibes. So for the sake of her, and she's thinking about her son, Todd, who's at home, 18-year-old Vicky agrees. I'm not sure that Vicky knew what she was getting into here. I don't. She's 17, 18 years old. I don't think I would, like, no, there's no way. There's no way. 
No, but I mean, so far so good, honestly, in that there's more where that $8,000 came from. Like he's going to give her a pretty solid allowance. He's giving her now like $18,000 a month. And he's paying for a luxury apartment for her, buying her cars. And he's like, this isn't all. I'm going to buy you a house. Yeah. So she's 18 years old, getting up to $18,000 a month. So there's stories of like her driving in these like hot little fancy cars, driving down the street and she'll like see a cute dress or something and just like do an immediate U-turn, go in the store, buy whatever she wants. I mean, this is a major Pay step the up. traffic ticket for the Yui. <laughs> She'd bill him. She'd bill Alfred. I'm sure she's like, I can't, yeah. I can't be paying this stuff. Um, so this is a big step up from her modest beginnings, okay? And again, she's only 18 years old. She has absolutely no self-control. Like, imagine at 18 getting this much money. I'd go crazy. No, you just shop till you drop. You go to – I mean, I would be like, I'm going to the mall. Listen, but in her case, she's kind of like in a fancier territory. So she's saying that she knows Rodeo Drive and all the department stores there like the back of her hand. And people are like, this woman could not – have been getting rid of her money faster if she burned it. As Alfred's mistress, she does have her work cut out for her. He calls her all the time. I mean, think about it. When they start talking, he was calling her 20 times a day. Now that he's actually paying her, it's like he's entitled to her time and he uses her. He vents about his marital woes. And Vicky, all the while, has to be really super supportive. But she knows he's never going to leave his wife for her. I mean, Betsy, his wife, has a very clear, strong hold on him because she is very much the image, the archetype of a wife. She's best friends with Nancy Reagan, and she's a very powerful woman. Yeah, guys like that can't – they can have affairs with Vickies. They can't marry Vickies, you know? Yeah. And so she's doomed to play the second fiddle for the rest of her life. Yeah. I mean, I guess when you're 18, that sounds like an, maybe an okay arrangement, right? You Maybe you're not ready for first fiddle or whatever. But it's a lot of emotional baggage. It's a lot of uh, BDSM dungeons on her calendar. You know, she's got to please him, which apparently for this guy means getting, I don't know, tied up and spanked here and there, which is not her kink. It's his. And I think this also stressed her out at the time because at this point, she starts to take Valium and other downers to calm her nerves. Yeah, that part makes me so sad. The idea that like she's go she's going to weird sex parties that she doesn't feel like she's like wants to be at. So she's like drugging herself to get through it. And I think that like the sort of cyclical depression of doing that, she's like, I I gotta find like another way to get time off. And so her solution is that she starts sort of pimping out her friends to Alfred for $2,500 a pop. Well, yeah, she's like sort of like becoming the procurer of her friends. And to make matters worse, Ugh. he's also not that consistent of a sugar daddy, if we're going to call him that, right? Because on a couple of occasions, Vicky and Alfred get Busted by people he knows, including his wife and their daughter, including Nancy Reagan, 
And so in these moments when they spot him with Vicky, it's like, and he has to go full damage control, right? To sort of like preserve his relationship Mm -hmm. with his wife. So to smooth things over and to protect Vicky, I guess, Alfred would cut Vicky off um, of all finances temporarily so that Betsy couldn't see where money was going in his finances. Because when she would see him canoodling, she'd sort of take a look at the books and see where all the money is going. And, you know, if he were to be funding this $18,000 a month, you know, affair, I think, you know, she'd kind she'd of... notice it. She totally noticed. Well, yeah. I gotta say, at one point, based on, like, visiting brothels, taking care of Vicky, sort of like the damage control for Betsy, it's said that um, Alfred is spending up to $2 million a year to maintain this life that he's created for himself. Yeah, that's no joke. That's insane. But I mean, as much as we're talking about how much money Vicky's getting, that's the point. It's not totally reliable. And she, being a kid, is not like, let me open up a savings account. The downsides of this relationship are weighing on her in every aspect of her life, right? He has the upper hand. She has no control. He's holding all of the cards except for one area, sex. So she's kind of like, wait a minute. If I can be seen on the arm of another wealthy benefactor basically showing, I don't need you, I can get another sugar daddy, then Alfred might want to readjust their arrangement to sort of stake his claim. Keep in mind, too, while she's on the arm of Alfred Bloomingdale, she's also meeting a lot of other high rollers and other people who are powerful and wealthy and famous, right? Yeah, and she's not, like, messing around as far as who she's choosing to date. Because at 23, she starts a romance with the movie star heartthrob, Cary Grant. But wait, 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 slow down. I feel like I saw your face and I know what you were picturing. You were totally picturing like a bringing up baby Cary Grant. tall, dark, and handsome, yeah. Yeah, to catch a thief, something like this. And I just want to reiterate that that would be the wrong decade. Right. Because, well, because speaking of thieves, speaking of babies, he is robbing the cradle because he's... 71 when she starts dating him. He's 50 years older well, than her. Quinn, that's not fair. 48 years. That's not fair, okay? okay. don't You're, We don't round right. up when it's Cary Grant. <laughs> I didn't mean to exaggerate the situation. I mean, he is 48 years 48. older Listen, than Listen, it's her. not a good Luke, but you know what? Let me have my Cary Grant moment. Um, but he actually brings her to the opening of the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. So again, she's being escorted to these like amazing places with these people. Yeah, I mean, I think it must be kind of fun to date him. It lasts a whole eight months. And Alfred, you know, her phone's ringing off the hook. Are you with Carrie? You know, I don't think he is very happy. Um, But And he's still sending her those monthly checks. So there's some, like, trying to keep his hold is what's happening. Yeah, and so she's finding comfort in the arms of other men while he is back with his wife and sort of, you know, trying to have some semblance of power, right? So after the relationship with Carrie Grant ends, she finds another guy who she marries. It's a bit of a change of pace for her because this guy is not ridiculously wealthy or famous. I think at this point, Vicky is going, hey, I've tried to like wealthy, famous, powerful guy. Maybe I should give the underdog a chance. 
this marriage, yeah, as you might have suspected, not very right. long-lived. It's a three-month right. situation. Vicky's off on a new escapade. Um, but this one sort of happens more by accident. Towards the end of her second marriage, this is around 1978, Vicky gets a call for a modeling job in Morocco. Okay, think about this. They're like, hey, do you want an all-expenses-paid trip to Morocco? Do you want to get paid to go to Morocco? It's almost like too good to be true to go to Morocco for free and get paid for it. And she has some friends who are going to go. So she goes, you know what? Fine, I'll do it. It's not ideal, but I need the money. Yeah, what about this is not ideal, just to be clear? Well, like, to me, I'm like, <laughs> so we just explained how you're not trying to get a job. You're kind of lazy about it. And then somebody's like, all expenses paid to Morocco. And you're like, eh, She right. doesn't love the jet lag. <laughs> she doesn't love the okay. jet lag. Is it's what not it her is. favorite kind of cuisine. Not her favorite <laughs> like, type. I mean, at this point, she's like, maybe I do. She, you know, she doesn't need the money, right? She's fine. Right. But I think at this point, it's like, well, I have friends It's an going, adventure. Okay, yeah, an adventure, sure. I'll go and model in Morocco. No other information. Just like, hey, hop on this flight. Which, what could possibly yeah. go wrong? Well, I'll tell you what could. You show up in Morocco, you get separated from your friends and taken into a waiting room and it's filled with servants and your blink starts going off and mm. you go, this feels dodgy suddenly. This feel the energy feels off in here. I don't feel good. I feel uncomfortable. So you do like the the slow scoot back toward the door, like the slowly backing out of the room yeah. kind of vibe and then somebody stops you and is like you must stay. I mean this isn't going She's great, like, right? In this massive estate in a foreign country, everybody's speaking another language around her. She's completely isolated. At this point, I think you're going, I think I'm going to die. I, this can't be good, right? And so they <laughs> yeah. like usher her into this dinner. And before long, the king of Morocco himself, Hassan II, waltzes into the room. And she doesn't know what he looks like. She doesn't know who he is. Um, and so... It's like, what's happening? Why is everybody standing up? Like, just imagine the scene. You're like, I just want to go home. I'm tired. That was a long flight. Um, but then she finds out who this guy is, and she's like, aha, this is not a chill modeling gig. No, she's presented to sort of be this king's consort, right? And that's something she really, frankly, I don't think she's that interested in. So she's like, that was weird. That was crazy. You know what? You're a king. You got deep pockets. Give me $5,000 just for my trouble. Because this whole thing was uncomfortable. pretty Very weird way to get a date, man. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're way off. So they're like, yes, yes, yes. Of course, $5,000. She's like, ta-ta, goes home. And then they're like, you know, we were really interested in, in this guy having a little moment with you. You, you know, sure. She says, you know what? Maybe it was Morocco. Maybe it's that I don't like the cuisine. I, fly me to France. I love an escargot. Uh, never seen the Eiffel Tower. And guess what? They do. And then that puts her in the mood because it's the city of love. And she sleeps with the guy in France. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's like a version of a princess story, right? And and listen, I want to be very clear. While this is all happening, she's chit-chatting with Alfred. Alfred's like, please don't go. It's the king of Morocco. He wants you. And she's like, you know what? Sorry. Duty calls. Marry me. No? Okay. Bye. Peace out. Seeing the king of Morocco. Wow. When Vicky gets back to L.A., she is 
not done with Alfred Bloomingdale, this relationship, it just keeps chugging. She would actually probably marry him if he asked. And it seems like he wishes he could marry her. But, you know, we got Betsy. And he's never going to leave her. Yeah, so she stays on as his mistress. And despite, you know, her getting married twice, having these brief affairs with other men, she's Mm -hmm. never really been far from Alfred. She's always sort of kept him... Um, at arm's length. Um, He's still paying her monthly allowance. And on top of that, she's also getting some kickbacks from the King of Morocco. So I gotta say, her portfolio is diverse. And I like that. She's diversified. Yes. She's amazing. I mean, some people play the field. She plays the globe. She's like taking it international. A lot of passive incomes. But, you know, all these men, she still wants romance. She's a young lady. She wants, like, some guy to swoop in that is a good fit and is like, I can be Todd's dad. You guys remember Todd? He's still here. He's still around. If she can't marry Alfred, she wants to marry somebody. Yeah, I think that's why she married that up-and-coming actor, too. I I think she really genuinely was hopeful. I think she's romantic at heart. So at this point, she's divorced. But before the year is out, Vicky ends up marrying her third husband, a very wealthy real estate developer named Bob Shulman. And unlike her other romances, Bob knows about Alfred. He knows what's going on there. And he figured out their arrangement long before the two of them got together. In fact, I think Alfred and Vicky's affair was sort of like a public secret in a lot of ways. And I think it's what actually made a lot of these men interested in Vicky. It sort of made her notorious or infamous, if you will. So Bob gets in her good graces, and he wants to marry Vicky, and so he even pays $20,000 that Vicky allegedly owes Alfred for kitchen appliances. He doesn't want Vicky to have any hang-ups. Yeah, and <laughs> Alfred finds out, and he just, like, the, the poor guy, he's he's devastated. He cries, and he's like, please, Vicky, don't marry this other guy. Don't marry Bob. Don't marry Bob Shulman. And he's like, I'll to get a divorce, you know, classic moves. Um, and Vicky's like, no way, man. Like, if you were into me, if you were going to make me your wife, you'd have done it by now. Yeah, so she gets married. But at this point, like, she's not satisfied, right? It's like these moments mm-hmm. of her, she makes these, like, really crazy, rash decisions. And then she's sort of left holding the bag, like, oh, this isn't what I wanted. I'm not satisfied. And I think it's important to acknowledge that from a young age, she's been groomed, right, by these men, Mm -hmm. by these older men. I have a lot of sympathy for her because I think at this point, like, at the time she sort of entered into these relationships with these older men, she was a teenager. And I think she's sort of, like, frozen at that age. She didn't know who she was either. It's like the kind of thing where you feel like, Hindsight's mm-hmm. twenty twenty, but if she had been, like, an older woman with wherewithal, she'd have taken this money and, you know, of course save some of it, but also probably use some of it to further, like, her education or her opportunities mm-hmm. or gotten involved in some, uh, I don't know, like you said, gotten on a path. But she didn't do that, and I think it's really depressing for her, and I think she is spiraling.
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Maybe she was always sort of spiraling, but things have gotten bad and they're about to get worse when she meets Jay, a.k.a. Spider. Jay's a Saudi princess. I don't think it's what you were picturing. I think it's a bit opposite, yeah. (laughs) She's been exiled from her home because she's, um, well, I I guess you would say like not very uh, traditional in their eyes. Yeah, when Vicky first meets Jay, Vicky sort of gets this sense that Jay has this intense masculine energy and that she remarks to a friend that Jay looks at her like a lot of men in Vicky's life looks at her. So that sort of like leering, sexualized, sort of like predatorial sort of stare. But she likes people looking at her like that. And I think this is no different. Like, Jay is like, you're beautiful. She's not shy about being like, I hope you stick around. And Vicky becomes sort of a drug dealer for Jay. Well, when they meet, when they meet, it's because Jay is going through, like, withdrawals. Well, so Vicky has connections in L.A., who can get Jay what Jay needs during this time. And, you know, at first, that is heroin. But then they start doing drugs together, and it also becomes cocaine, and then it becomes a sort of cocktail of the two. I mean... It's getting getting kind of crazy. Vicky would be high for days, and the two of them start a brief affair. I mean, Jay at this point is a Saudi princess who's been sort of, like, exiled to the U.S., but it's not like she's been left a pauper. Like, she has... A lot of money, a lot of means. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vicky finds Jay, like, more intense than any man she's been with. I think because of the amount of, like, power and money. Um, and eventually their antics lead them to Hawaii for, like, a drug, booze-fueled bender. And all while this is going on, lest you forgot, we got Bob back home. Bob's taking care of Todd. And I don't think he loves the new situation. Like, marry her, take care of her son. She's going to go have a lesbian affair in Hawaii with a princess. So he's like, um, I think I should leave. 
But she this doesn't stop her. She's like not going to run back and fix it. Even when her first husband dies and she comes back to L.A. to go to the funeral, she still afterwards goes right back to Hawaii and right back to her drug cocktails. And she recognizes that she has a problem. I mean, she's not naive to that. She knows this is not a sustainable life for herself. She's depressed. She's drowning in substance abuse. She just can't stop herself. I mean, she probably hasn't been sober of mind since she first started taking Valium back when she met Alfred, right? Like, these drugs that she's taking is just to cover up the dissatisfaction in her life is what I assume is happening. Right. And it it breaks her. So she goes back to L.A. She checks herself into a mental hospital and she tries to get her life back together. What is so crazy is her doing that is the decision that will lead to her brutal murder. Vicky checks herself into the Thalian Mental Clinic in Beverly Hills. It is a top-of-the-line facility, and frankly, let's be real, at this point, only the best for Vicki Morgan. And she's dealing with a lot of things, right? In addition to the substance abuse, she's depressed, she has anxiety, she just has like sort of a litany of things that she's having to address in this in this clinic. Um, she's absolutely burned out. Yeah, and so she's there for five months, and during her stay at the clinic, she becomes pals with a young guy named Marvin Pancoast. He's also there for substance abuse. Unlike her, his array of mental illnesses is, well, it's different. I don't want to say it's more serious. It is different. Uh, We're talking schizophrenia, manic depression, psychosis, and a tendency for masochism. And what's landed Marvin at this clinic is that he has attempted suicide multiple times. And many of these attempts have been in public. He's worked at big talent agencies, and he was known to steal contact information from celebrities, from powerful people. He's absolutely enamored by the lifestyles of the rich and famous. He's a gay man, which in the 70s isn't openly accepted, right? And just to put it into context, homosexuality was still classified as a mental illness at this point only until six years prior. So on top of his mental illnesses, he's also dealing with discrimination and bigotry. But he and Vicky really hit it off. And in a way, their relationship is perfect because it's perfect she's kind of famous. To, it's like perfect for the devil. It's like they are literally feeding sort of like the worst parts the neg- of themselves. The negative things yeah. in each other. Yeah, they're like yeah, yin and yang that. to like it's bad. It's just bad. Where it's like you should probably not be unhealthily like obsessed with famous people. But instead it's like, oh, here's this woman that sleeps with famous people. She's kind of fame adjacent. And he's like, giddy up. And then – For her, it's like this person who takes her depressive tendencies and he sort of realizes them. Like he goes even further um, into that kind of stuff. But, you know, to her credit, it's probably pretty refreshing to have a gay friend, like to have a man that is like, I am not interested at all in having sex with you. And I totally see that you're pretty and I'll totally be your friend and do helpful things for you. But I don't want to sleep with you. Yeah, but like he's still using her and she's using him. It's like it's it's just feels like Isn't that like, what friendship is, Carrie? And you and I can talk about that in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do use you. Th- and you know what I use you for? Your self-defense acumen, your rollovers or whatever it is, your rollouts. There it is. I use you for your rollouts. Because listen, if I'm on a street with anyone, I want it to be Quinlan Posner. Um, so while, while Marvin and Vicky, they're both being treated at this clinic, um, he sort of starts to be of service to her in a way that is not healthy in a mental health facility, right? He sort of becomes her maid. He makes her tea. He gives her foot massages. He does her chores. And in exchange, she tells him all of the like lurid, um, scandalous uh, secrets of all the people that she's ever met. Yeah, not totally an equal relationship. Um, And like, we're not the only people that notice that problem. The doctors at the facility are like, hold up. And they talk to Vicky. They're like, you know, Marvin actually hasn't done great with his therapy. He has really serious issues, a lot of them with his mother. And the more that you treat Marvin like you're lesser, the more that he sort of has this thing where he feels like you are his mother. He sees you as a maternal figure. And that's that's not good. We know how the guy feels about his mom, and we're just going to tell you. That's dangerous. Well, even when they are both about to exit this facility, Marvin and Vicky talk about moving in together. And everyone at that clinic is like, do not do, do not this. Do that. He is dangerous. He could lean into violence. We do not suggest you do that. So they do go their separate ways right after they get out of Thallion Medical Clinic. So it's now been a few years since Vicky's been out of the Thallion Mental Clinic, and it's August of 1981. She learns that Alfred has been diagnosed with esophagus cancer. And after his first surgery, he's not doing well. He's actually pretty much at death's door. And the doctors are like, we don't think he's going to survive. It's so bad that a priest arrives to give Alfred his last rites. Um, And at this point, hope is gone for Vicky that she's ever going to get to see him again. But somehow, miraculously, frankly, he pulls through. And you got to give it to her. These feelings for him, um, it's been years. They're real. She wants to go see him. He's always been generous to her despite their relationship being pretty wackadoodle do. Like there is mm-hmm. some kind of weird love here. She genuinely cares about his well-being, so much so that while he's in the hospital, she actually disguises herself as a nurse and she visits him because she knows she can't go in and let the family know what she looks like, right? She has to be secretive. She's mm-hmm. still his mistress. She genuinely wants to care for this man who is dying. He is sick. He is he says he loves Vicky. Vicky says she loves him. She's like giving him sponge baths. Like like while this guy's dying, he wants to see her and she has to like sneak around and dress up as a nurse to see him. Their love to me, I'm not going to lie, it feels Stockholm adjacent. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't okay. listen. I I don't think anybody's going. Wow, the love story uh, for the ages. I don't think anyone is sitting here going, Wow, if only it were me. I think like I think, I think good yeah. honor for being there for him after this history. We like to see that. It does feel like um, she's loyal, and I like mm-hmm. that about her. I like that when he's going through this, she goes well out of her way to sneak around and, you know, go to the doctor, but also to uh, uh, go to the house once he's out of the hospital to be with him there. She sneaks into the house, right, to visit him, but eventually Betsy finds out. At this point, Betsy really ups the security. 
um, and she makes sure there are two guards stationed at the entrance to Alfred's room. And Alfred deteriorates in health, and um, he's no longer able to fight back or advocate for himself or, frankly, for his mistress either. And so Betsy is now in control of all decisions for Alfred, including financial decisions. Oh, yeah, that's not going to be good. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and assume, Vicky, you can forget about that allowance. At this point, Vicky has been cut off emotionally from Alfred and financially, and she's not going to take this lying down. So Vicky Morgan files a suit against Alfred Bloomingdale in 1982, um, and she believes she's owed millions of dollars for promises made. Alfred's promised her $10,000 a month. He's promised to buy her a home. And as his close confidant, she's come to depend on this money. Yeah, I... (laughs) It's pretty wild concept to me that you can go to court and be like, promises. But, you know, she actually believes she is owed under a little-known concept called palimony, which sounds like I'm kidding. It sounds like I'm telling you a joke, but no, it's a real thing. It's not alimony. It's palimony. But they're actually pretty similar if you get the concept of alimony, which is for married couples. And palimony is for people who are not married but are financially dependent on each other. Which in this case is a bit of a stretch, right? Like the two of them don't even live together. But Vicky has a really good lawyer, one who's actually successfully argued a palimony case before. Um, And the thing about this lawyer, his tactics are a little slimy. Yeah, I mean, the guy wins the cases. That's why you hire him. You don't hire him to be um, a good guy, clean of all slime. And (laughs) You want a little slime. Vicky, you want a little slime in your lawyer. Everybody knows that. But as Alfred's mistress, Vicky, she was privy to some secrets that could wreck his reputation. And they could affect how people see that Bloomingdale's name. Because I don't know about you, but before we did this research, when I thought Bloomingdale's, I did not think um, bondage. (laughs) They don't even sell any bondage stuff there. I checked. So it's a little out of line with the branding. I'm sure but they actually have something. Se- I'm sure they have something, Quinn. You know what? Christmas is right around the corner, Carrie. You get on that website and figure it out. The secrets that she knows are not just those secrets, though. They ripple all the way to the White House where Betsy's pal, Nancy, Nancy Reagan, is currently living. So at this point, they're sort of building their case, right? So they have all of the dirt that Vicky has on Alfred. They have the sex parties, the BDSM, the multiple affairs. And more importantly, they do actually have two written contracts made between Alfred and Vicky that actually has some substance. And that would all come out. And when Vicky gives her deposition, it totals to 213 pages of hot goss. You know what I mean? Like, this is some dirt. And I feel like it's like a poker table situation, Mm -hmm. and she's on one side, and Betsy's on the other, and it's like, who's bluffing? Who has the stronger hand vibes? And she's kind of like, look, you've got this choice. You could settle the lawsuit out of court. Nothing's going to get revealed. Nobody's going to know all these things I have to say. Or, Or you can let the world know 
everything. And if we go to trial, who knows what could happen? I could lose everything. I could win everything. And knowing how Betsy is handling Alfred's health demise and cutting off Vicky, can you guess what she does? She gives Vicky the legal equivalent of the middle finger. She takes her to court, and in doing so, that deposition is released for the world to devour. The media gets their hands on this, and it becomes public fodder. Bloomingdale's name is dragged through the mud, and every lurid detail is splashed across newspapers. They totally miscalculated Betsy. They didn't realize how pissed she was at her husband and how ready and willing she was to throw him under the bus. Yeah, you're the one that used the word vindictive earlier. I think that's exactly right. I think she's pissed at um, Vicky. She's jealous of Vicky. And she's not, above all else, she's just not going to let Vicky win. No. And on Friday, August 23rd, 1982, three weeks after Vicky had filed this palimony case, Alfred Bloomingdale dies. What makes me sad is that Vicky learns about Alfred's death after this really long relationship. She finds out he's dead in the newspaper. And not only that, she finds out two days after he was buried. And that must make her so angry and so sad, right, that she didn't get to be there and properly be a part of mourning him. I get it. She's the mistress. But it's like nobody told her. It just feels... Like a major bummer. Even with Alfred gone, Vicky could continue her lawsuit. And I think she's really desperate for some kind of financial security. And the contracts that she had, the two contracts that she has that have some sort of like legal basis for this palimony suit is that um, she's owed nearly two years of monthly payments of $10,000. Um, And in addition, she has a contract for half a million dollar investment in a business called Showbiz Pizza. I'm hungry. Wow. It's a really good name. I mean, sounds like a great place. But until this case is done, she has exactly nothing. So she turns to the only friend that she can think of, her old buddy from the mental clinic, Marvin Pancoast. So as Carrie told you, they had kind of chatted about maybe becoming roomies. And again, I'll remind you, nobody thought that was a good idea. But now she needs help. She needs somewhere to live. They've got to make it happen. And they do. And being together sort of brings back memories, brings back old habits, and they fall back into their old ways. The relationship that they had in the clinic where she essentially treats Marvin like a servant so tension between them is on the rise. And at this point, Vicky doesn't have any money, right? She's living on borrowed time, borrowed rent, essentially, right? So she has to find other ways to make some money and quick. And she realizes that while she doesn't really have many successful skills, she does have a treasure trove of stories to tell involving the rich and famous. And with this high-profile trial and with the deposition that everybody is sort of like mm-hmm. seething or is buzzing salivating, about. yeah, buzzing about, um, she could make a killing selling a book. Yeah, and I feel like she's at home and Marvin's like, tell me another story about a famous person. And she's like, God, people love these stories. Like, it must be in her head that like this is a very 
uh, saleable thing. Not having a background in the literary world, she's like, I think the best way to do this is to team up with somebody that would know more than me, and I'm going to get a writer. And I think publishers also were going, hey, maybe you should get a writer to write these stories down. Yeah, the way you just like tell them to Marvin, it's not going to (laughs) totally translate to the page. So she finds this guy named Gordon Basicus, and she's like, let's write this thing together. But he's like, how about instead we get busy together? Right, because nothing says romance like writing and an affair. So romantic. Quills everywhere. Gordon is also married, and he has an 18-month-old baby at home. But still, this affair begins. It's hot and heavy. After months of Vicky and Gordon working together and working together, they have little Mm -hmm. more than a chapter and an outline for the rest of the book. They clearly are getting up to not writing, let's just say that. And you know, Vicky is waiting for her case to go to court, and she's seeing this case get weaker and weaker as the judge throws out parts of her case. And so she knows, like, I mean, at this point, she feels pretty hopeless. Yeah, and that is a bad way to feel. Like, you're not getting the book done. You're not getting the case done. You're she's about to be Marvin. evicted from her apartment. Yeah, she's fighting all the time with Marvin. They're not making great roommates, as everyone anticipated. Because here's the thing. She can't pay rent, so she has to stay with Marvin. She doesn't have anywhere to go, but obviously from his perspective, it's like, well, then I would really like to not be a maid. Maybe you could be a good, I don't know, house guest. And she's not. She's not doing the dishes. So, yeah, things aren't going great. The book's not going great. The case isn't going great. The roommate situation leaves a lot to be desired. But she's depressed because everything's going so crappy that she just sits in bed reading all day. She's not helping. She's got a bottle of wine on the bedside table, and she's, you know what, I think she's taking a lot of naps. And Marvin's getting pissed. And they're getting evicted, right? They're getting kicked out of the house because Vicky can't pay rent. And on July 7th, 1983, Marvin snaps. He goes to Vicky's room with her son's baseball bat, and he bludgeons her to death while she's asleep. As an article in Vanity Fair would put it, he did for her what she could not do for herself. He killed her. Vicky is 30 years old. Look, I don't care how depressed you are. I don't care if you have a bottle of wine on the bedside table. That is a really harsh way to put it, like to do for her what she couldn't do for herself. It's presuming that she was suicidal, which we don't know her to be, and she was 30 years old. You don't think she had enough time to turn that life around? We do know that she had suicidal ideations. I think there were attempts on her life. That well, that's doesn't... her beeswax. She didn't ask <laughs> exactly. somebody to do it for her. Exactly. But I think, I think it, to me, honestly, reading that in Vanity Fair sort of about her life feels to me like another man presuming to know best for Vicki Morgan and making decisions for her. It's like her right. whole life has been men making decisions for her, and she hasn't been able to try to stand on her own two feet. Even her writer was a man who was having an affair with her. Like It's like this poor woman from a young age has just been abused and taken advantage of. It's just sick. It also insinuates a vibe of like, 
uh, shooting an injured horse or something, like putting her out of her misery. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if that's the vibe, then how about like an, I don't know, how about a lot of pills? How about like an arsenic cocktail? You beat her to death with a bat. That is a rough way to go, man. It's really sad. And her son is left without a mother. Right. And it's not even like she picked the wrong friend because it feels like he was her only friend. I think a lot of people, I think because she had a lot of money, I think a lot of people came to use Vicki Morgan throughout her life. I think she was someone who was, you know, she money come in, money go out. I think she sort of like had a lot of sycophants around her who were using her for these resources that she had. I, my heart breaks that I don't think she knew like a true friend. I think everybody just wanted literally a piece of her, whether it was money, whether it was her beauty, whether it was her body. I don't think that she mm-hmm. had any any people with pure intentions. And I think it's just really sad. It's really sad. Now, what follows this brutal murder is not a, like a zany whodunit sort of investigation because actually... Marvin kills her, and then he drives right to the police station and is like, I just killed my friend. It's just simple as that. Yeah, but what follows the murder is where her story turns from an open and shut case to what the people might call many a conspiracy theory. Many, many a. Because remember, she's got all these connections to the rich, to the famous. To the political. To the the White House, yeah. Yeah. So it's like combined with this explosive lawsuit against Alfred Bloomingdale that's been getting a ton of press. Alfred is also one of Reagan's closest advisors. So this whole thing inspires a lot of suspicion. Well, I mean, it seems like an open and shut case. A guy murders Mm -hmm. his friend and then goes to the police and turns him in. It's just too convenient, I think, for a lot of these Mm. people who are really pulling at straws, pulling at strings on this one. And as their theory might go, is that Vicky knew too much about people who were very powerful and that she had to be dealt with because she was writing this book and who knows what secrets she was sharing. So most likely um, agents from the CIA, because as a conspiracy, it always has to do with the CIA, um, had to take care of her. Right. I mean, the evidence that they'll lean on is that Marvin Pancoast, when he arrived at the police station to be like, I just did this, remember, he bludgeoned her with a bat. There's no blood on him. He's totally clean. Yeah. You don't have to be like Dexter Morgan to think that's sus. What's even more suspicious is that the forensic investigation of the murder was completely botched. And by like completely botched, I really mean completely botched. Like the police took Marvin Pancoast at his word. He came in and said, I murdered my friend. And the police were like, I guess we don't need to corner off the crime scene. We don't need to preserve it in any way. We don't need forensic evidence. Nope. So they could not find any fingerprints on the bat. And any blood samples that they had were like wrapped in plastic. So fungus and mold and stuff like was, so it was all contaminated. Oh, right. Yeah, I didn't know that before reading that. That you like you can't take a bloody thing and wrap it in plastic. You have to wrap it in cloth and like the plastic will screw up the science stuff. So yeah, the humidity it'll but like you would grow. just think like protocol. De- yes. Like you would think protocol at a crime scene, despite what you know or don't know, would be the same and you wouldn't screw with that stuff, but they did. And adding more fuel to the fire 
11 days after she dies, Robert K. Steinberg, who's this L.A. lawyer, reveals that he is in possession of three sex tapes that star Vicky, along with not just Alfred, but a U.S. congressman and five high-ranking Reagan admin appointees and three to four other women, a binder full of women. And I love this quote. You know what they were doing on the tapes, Gary? What, Quinn? What? What could they, what could the... They were in hot pursuit of carnal knowledge. All right. I think we know what that implies. And the media... The more you know. <laughs> carnally, that is. The media gets wind of this, and they are chomping at the bit for these tapes, right? Like, they are dying, yeah. clamoring. His office, Robert K. Steinberg's office, is, like, surrounded. He can't get any peace and quiet. And then, coincidentally enough, he says, hey... Bad news, guys. These three tapes that I had, they were stolen from my gym bag. Because, of course, that's where <laughs> I would leave all the things I don't want to be touched because I never go to the gym. Or maybe, maybe they never existed in the first place. Frankly, we'll never know the truth of what happened to these yeah. tapes or if they were real. Yeah, it's interesting because that guy she was writing, well, writing and, and screwing around with Gordon, he's like, no, 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 no. I do not think they were real. I don't think that those sex tapes happened because she never said anything to me. I'm kind of like, Gordon, did she tell you everything? Relax. Like, you weren't <laughs> her best friend. Um, but he's like, I do think it's possible that she was killed for knowing too much. And if anyone had their finger on the pulse of what she did know, you'd think maybe it was him because they're trying to write this book. Yeah, I think there was like something someone said along the way. It was like, check Marvin's mom's bank account, assuming or like implying that Marvin got right. paid to to take care of Vicky for whomever he was working for. One thing that is interesting is that Marvin does end up recanting his confession. He says when he recants, I think that Vicky was killed because she was using the sex tapes as blackmail. So we have this pile on where one guy's like, there are sex tapes. And other people are like, are there, aren't there? And then Marvin is like, yeah, uh, you know what? Hearing about those sex tapes, never mind, never mind. I didn't do it. And someone else did because of them. Yeah, because then also to benefit the defense, where's the forensic evidence? Because they can't corroborate any of these stories, any of these, even the initial Confession. You're right. I mean, all they really have is his confession. Yeah. So all these details, though, as titillating as they are, and they are titillating, they're all just hearsay. And so when the verdict finally comes down on the matter of who killed Vicki Morgan at Marvin Pancoast's trial, it takes not long and a jury of 10 women and two men say it was Marvin. He is sentenced to 26 years to life in prison. But in the meanwhile... All these questions were raised, and it is hard to say with certainty if he did this on his own or if somebody paid him or pushed him to do it. I would say in the end, Eileen Occam's razor and the simplest explanation is the correct one. Marvin did it. Marvin did it. I think so, too. I think he was a sick man, um, and he killed his friend. Um, and Marvin ended up, um, years later, he ended up dying in jail from AIDS-related illnesses. Um, and I just want to say as a final coda to this journey through Vicki Morgan's wild and tragic life, um, a year and a half after her murder, the palimony case against Alfred Bloomingdale's estate actually reaches its final conclusion. And Vicki's estate won. 
and her estate is awarded $200,000, and all of it goes to her son, Todd. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime, and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing, because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. An article in Vanity Fair entitled The Woman Who Knew Too Little by Dominic Dunn. An article from the Associated Press entitled Vicki Morgan, A Model, Is Beaten to Death. And the book Beautiful Bad Girl by Gordon Basikis, Vicki's ghostwriter turned lover. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we recommend these sources. But we also recommend Gordon's book to be taken with a grain of salt. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.